You are listening to Tell It From Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, where we preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. The following sermon is by Dr. Ed Stetzer, author, missiologist, and interim teaching pastor at Calvary. For upcoming events and services, visit our website at cbcnyc.org. And now, here is today's message. Hi everybody, Ed Stetzer here, Interim Teaching Pastor, and glad to be able to open God's Word. If you have a Bible, take it out, turn with me. We're going to actually be looking at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to look at chapter 2, beginning at verse 5, and then we're going to go all the way to verse 8, verses 5 through 8. The title of our message today is Emptied and Exalted. Emptied and Exalted. We're going to mainly focus on the emptied. That's going to relate to the exalted a little bit later on. So that's our focus is emptied and exalted. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5, and we're going to go down uh, all the way through verse 8. Let's take a look. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, if you know this passage, you're actually at this point wanting to say, well, let's go on to, therefore Christ highly exalted him, and I want to get there too, but we're going to actually get there next week. So for now, we're going to stay on the specific part of the emptying and what ultimately uh, that means and why ultimately it matters. We're going to look broadly at some of the theology here, but we have to remember that the theology is given in a context, right? So, and what the word that gives us that context is in chapter 2, verse 5. Focus our minds. Think this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, right? So here's the passage, right? How are we to think about the moment we're in, right? And how are we to live in community with one another? That's what we're going to look at today, right? So, you know, it's interesting because we talk about emptying. No one wants to empty themselves of anything nowadays. When we moved, when Donna and the girls and I moved, Donna made me um, sell things that I had since we lived in Buffalo. We'd planted a church in Buffalo among the urban poor. Um, one of the things I did, I got a job. I was a contractor. So I had built up my tools and I had some pretty good tools that even occasionally I updated. I got myself a 10-inch DeWalt compound miter saw with a slide. And so I had this really nice saw and Lots of other things that I had gathered since Buffalo being a contractor, right? So we had lived there. And and, and it was interesting because um, my own reaction to Donna saying, you know, you don't do that anymore. And I'm like, but honey, you never know when I might need to lay a sidewalk. You never know when I might need to lay some brick. And um, so, but she, she eventually persuaded me that I was hauling around, in my case, tools that I wouldn't generally use. But we're just the opposite of that as a culture. We're kind of the opposite of emptying. People are filling, right? My garage was too filled with tools. And my wife said, you got to move on. Uh, think about storage buildings, right? How many storage buildings are there around? We don't like to let go of things. We like to, we don't like to empty anything. And yet, 
This is the whole theme, not just of what Jesus did, though it is. It also lays out for us that Jesus calls us to have an attitude. Uh, Paul's writing that we should have this attitude that was also in Christ Jesus, right? So so I don't want you to miss this, right? The, the Apostle Paul wants us to take on the attitude of Jesus in regards to this emptying, kenosis. You've heard me kind of hint at it. Sean and I talked about it a couple of weeks ago after the service and the post-service conversation, which, by the way, can I just invite you to? We're having important and blessed con- conversations, and we want to encourage you to come be a part of that. But kenosis is the word in Greek. And it means to empty. And, and you're going to see how that fits into this um, kenosis idea uh, and, and really lies at the center of what Paul is calling us in Philippians to do, who he's calling us to be in a culture that's very much the opposite of the emptying as well. Now, you know this, the fastest growing, one of the fastest growing industries in the whole country is uh, self-storage, right? You can walk all over the boroughs and you're going to find self-storage units in some of the most fascinating places. I bet I bet some of you could tell stories of storage units that have just appeared, maybe in an old warehouse or maybe sometimes in some of the strangest locations. And 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 so that's us. We want to keep and store everything. And keep in mind that God the Son, there's never been a time when God hasn't existed as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You know, uh, God the Son always having existed, yet God the Son ultimately um, living in heaven, I mean, and everywhere, um, every privilege and position there, all the power it contained, and and then he's um, incarnated, incarnated. And if you know the word carne in Spanish or Portuguese or more, it means flesh. Jesus took on flesh. And in doing so, it's what we call the kenosis. He, t- he added to his divinity, his humanity, emptying himself. We'll talk about of what, but Jesus... And this emptying, right? Um, he didn't lay down the possession of, for example, his divinity or in the possession of his power, um, which is all the more remarkable because we actually see the, for example, the temptations in the wilderness in Matthew chapter four and then later in the garden. Uh, G- Satan comes to Jesus, try to tempt him to inappropriately exercise or exercise out of God's will the powers that he possessed. Um, but for us, the kenosis, the emptying, is a central theological truth that is essential for us to understand because it shapes how we're actually literally to relate to one another. So to do that, we're going to learn a lot of theological words at church today. Because um, I think if you can learn to order coffee at Starbucks, you can learn some theological language at church. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to press into those and we're going to look at uh, several things. We're going to go through several points one at a time to see what we can learn from Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. Number 1, uh, Jesus waived his rights willingly. Chapter 2, verse 6. Now let's take a look at it. It says this. It says, who, this is talking about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, again, don't miss this. The Son of God has always been. There's never been a time when God has not existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Though, interestingly, a whole lot of people don't know that. Matter of fact, um, evangelicals in a study with Ligonier Ministry that we created when I was at Lifeway Research, um, 75, excuse me, 78% of those with evangelical beliefs said Jesus was the first and greatest being created by the Father. That's not 
Right. Now, if you thought that, we still love you, and but we want you not to think that, because um, there's never been a time when God has not existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is important, because having existed always as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we actually see passages that speak to that throughout the Scriptures. And in knowing what's going on here, we get some of the language of Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Now, I'll be honest with you, the ESV, which is the Bible we're using here, can be a little clunky. It's, it's um, as a translation, you know, these are translated from the original Greek. And the ESV um, takes a more word-for-word uh, translation approach. So you hear things like where it says, um, it says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Um, and that can sometimes be a little confusing to me what that means. And we're going to unpack that as we go through, because I want you to understand first that equality with God. Well, let me, let me, let me show you a couple of passages and we'll get to that. Right. So it says this, it says, um, and now John 17, five, Jesus is praying. And now father glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So always God, the son has rightly existed in the glory. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, He, that's Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by word of his power. Don't miss that. He upholds the universe by word of his power. There's nothing that exists that God the Son is not part of what it means to be created, right? So, so the language here can be formal and maybe a little challenging. So let's go through it, right? Um, the, that here, the issue of this passage is Jesus laid down his, his rights, the rights he had as God, as deity. He was still God, but he took on flesh. He added to his divinity, humanity, didn't, didn't treasure his rights over of, as deity over the work he was going to do for humanity. And form and nature with God and equality with God, God are actually parallel statements. Okay. Let me make sure we don't miss that, right? They're actually parallel statements, right? So it says in Philippians chapter two, verse six, it says, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, right? Form of God and equality of God are parallel statements, both making the same point that Jesus is God always been. There's never been a time when he was not, and he is God. So the NIV, uh, which uses a little more of a meaning for meaning translation, puts it this way. It says, um, it says, uh, it makes it a little clearer when it says, in very nature God, who, it's a, so, so the translation would be who, in very nature God, right, rather than a form of, which we think of form a little differently than the New Testament writers did. So, um, so theologically speaking, right, we're going to use some other words, right? There are aspects, what we call comparative attributes of God, right? Comparative attributes of God. So God is uh, omniscient, he's omnipresent, and he's omnipotent. Omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, all-present or everywhere. Uh, and omnipotent is all-powerful. So those are attributes of God. Yet Jesus, having emptied himself of his privileges taken adding to his deity humanity has actually limited his status and his privileges and doesn't exercise certain elements of his 
deity. He doesn't cease to be God. He's deity as God. He doesn't cease to be God, doesn't give them up, but lowers himself, does not exercise them, self-imposed limitations. And we are told, don't miss this, and we are told to have that attitude in ourselves. So it's important. He did not empty himself of deity. He emptied himself of the privilege and the position he had divine rights to. So this is amazing. This is one of the most important theological passages in the whole Bible. And most people say that, though some people debate whether Paul was mainly using this as an illustration of a hymn or a song. And I've mentioned that a few times. You may wonder why I keep saying that. Because in I was looking at the ESV, my ESV here does actually not indent. But my guess is some of you will look at your Bible and it actually will indent this section. Because the way it is structurally, it actually may have been originally in Aramaic, but you can actually, in the original language, you can actually feel the structure feels like something that's more lyrical. And so it's indented in a lot of Bibles. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't happen to be in this one, right? So, so Jesus then empties himself of the privilege, the kenosis, he kenosis, he empties himself of the privilege of exercising these attributes that he still has, but he does not exercise. Okay, so I don't want you to miss that, right? And there are some passages that I think will help us to get a picture of how this works, and we'll take a look at some of those passages. For example, um, God knows everything. That's kind of a basic thing that you teach your your, your first grader or before that. God knows everything. Yet, it says this uh, about Jesus. It says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father only. So something God the Son, Jesus the Christ, doesn't know, but the Father only knows. Or how about this? Uh, Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not here, that you may believe, but let us go to him. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Okay, so there's the assumption that um, that Jesus could have exercised that power, could have exercised that power from a distance, but he didn't for a reason. Um, Mark 6, 5 says, and he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. That's talking about Jesus healing some people. So, so don't miss this, right? This is just maybe a new concept for some of you, and that's okay. But I want you to see that this all-powerful king, God the Son, king of all the universe, by whom all things were created, things in the earth, things above the earth, things under the earth, limits himself to a human baby. His divinity takes on humanity. You know, and I can't, you know, (laughs) I, I myself think about, you know, things that I used to do when I was younger and I can't do now. And I think of how limiting that might be. And yet then the king, the king of all the universe, empties himself, limits himself. Why? Because of us. Now, again, this I don't want to go into the totality of why, because that's actually not the point that Paul makes. Paul makes the point that you should be like that. Don't miss that. Paul's making the point. That you walking around church saying, I want to be my way. You walking around life saying, I want to be my way. You walking around your existence being about you. 
have this attitude in yourselves, he says, that was also in Christ Jesus, well, though existed in the very form or very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, I have it memorized in a slightly different version, but emptied himself. So the power in this passage is multifaceted. What God the Son has done being born Jesus the Christ. Uh, what that means for us is great love for us. Uh, what that means theologically in the kenosis, the emptying. And what it means for us practically when Paul writes, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So that leads us to number two on our outline, right? Number two on our outline says uh, this. It is um, Jesus emptied himself for us. That's literally the word in the passage, right? It says, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. So that's kind of the con- the contrast, by the way. When we hear the form of God, for us, that seems like a form is like a replica. That's not what it means in this context, because here's the contrast, right? Taking on the form of a servant. So he, form of God, very nature God, now the form of a servant being born in the likeness of, of men. So don't miss that. Again, keep coming back to the context. So listen, Calvary's on a journey. I know every church in the world right now in some challenging spaces, but Calvary's on a unique journey. I mean, unique literally means one of a kind. There's no church in the world that is in the same circumstance and situation as Calvary. God's in it. There's no, we, we, we're trusting him through it. Uh, there's path and plans uh, walking together. And all that being said, we need to hear this passage and to ask how might we apply it in Calvary in 2020. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, because we see this emptying, right? God became a man. His deity uh, took on humanity. The Lord became a servant. Uh, Verse 6 speaks of Jesus' attitude, right? Uh, Verse 7 of his action. Right, So it says, but he um, emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He emptied himself. But emptying, again, is not stopping being God. He couldn't be. The passage makes it clear that he is God. But emptying is that he made himself nothing. Uh, A baby on the edge of the Roman Empire, the backwaters of the Roman Empire, made himself nothing. I was on a call with the uh, one of the senior editors of the Atlantic magazine this week. We're talking about, there's an interview for a uh, story and podcast on related to some things related to conspiracy theories. And um, it was interesting because um, I don't know that she's a person of faith. Uh, certainly the, her writings didn't necessarily indicate that, but it was a great conversation. And uh, it'll, it'll actually, you know what I'll do? I'll, I'll actually share it. And when that time comes and, uh, if you're interested, we'll put it on the on the Facebook page. Um, but what was interesting was I'm trying to explain that as an evangelical Christian, I believe things that the rest of the world finds implausible, if not impossible, that God the Son was born Jesus the Christ on the backwaters of the Roman Empire in the middle of nowhere. You know why that's impossible or implausible? Because why would God empty himself like that? That's the beauty of this passage, right? Emptying is that he made himself nothing, adding divinity to his humanity. By the way, that's called the hypostatic union, since we're using some theological words. Uh, But again, we have to limit the number of new theological words to one message. Uh, But but Paul says he emptied himself before assuming the form of a slave. And and, and one of the key things, again, keeping in mind Paul's really tying this to behavior, 
And one of the things for us to remember is that taking the attitude and mind of Christ means we have to empty ourselves, right? We live in a consumeristic culture. We want things our way. Yet this passage is clearly telling us that have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ, who emptied himself. And the picture of Christ emptying himself is, well, what Paul points us ultimately to. Now, I don't want you to miss that because we live in a culture that doesn't empty itself of anything. And we live in an autonomous individual culture as well, where, where people want what they want and they demand what they want. They demand it at work and they demand it at home and they demand it, yes, at church. And maybe the words of Paul kind of push us away from that. Or maybe the life of Jesus might push us away from that as well, right? The very Jesus who says that then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, some of you may be saying, man, I really liked it, Ed, when you were talking about the theology of the kenosis, but man, does that mean I need to pick up the towel and serve others? Yeah, that's what it means. That's what it points So the passage before us is filled with theological truth, but like so many things in the Word of God, also filled with practical truth for us to live. Which leads us to number three on our outline. Jesus obeyed in humility. Jesus obeyed in humility. It says in verse 8, being found in human form, right? Now we've heard the third form reference, right? So now we see that it's not talking about like it's a shadow or a picture, but he's now in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Now, don't miss this, because the kenosis principle, the way to live by emptying ourselves, involves, always involves humility. And that was part of what we saw when Paul was writing earlier. Remember, we went through last week, Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Before that, Philippians 2, 1, and 2. I know you're doing the math. You're saying, Ed, you're doing like two or three verses a week. Stay with me. We'll speed up as we get a little bit later on through the book. But I want you not to miss this, because this humility comes from our imitation of Christ. This is not a humility that comes from because of something the world has created, though the world does recognize the value and place of humility. Where we actually see that, I, I mentioned it recently, I think it was in the after church chat that we have, uh, in the book, Good to Great, Jim Collins often talks about things like this. Let me give you an example, actually, from Collins. He talks about David Packard of Hewlett Packard. Some of you heard of that. 1949, the 37-year-old David Packard attended a meeting of business leaders fidgeting while they discussed how to squeeze more profit from their companies. He was finally unable to contain himself. He said, a company has a greater responsibility than making money for its stockholders. He asserted eyes turned towards the six-foot, five-inch man. He said, we have a responsibility to our employees to recognize their dignity as human beings. Remember, Jim Collins is citing this very well-known business author in his book, very well-known book, Good to Great. What set Packard apart is that he wasn't a person set apart. His uh, Collins goes on to explain his idea of a good time, according to a co-worker, was to get together with friends and string barbed wire. Um, he was Silicon Valley's first um, self-made, one of the first self-made billionaires. He lived in a small, understated house. He and his wife built in 1957. He donated along with Hewitt Hewlett, uh, to Stanford, uh, uh, an amount comparable to the present land value of Stanford's uh, original endowment. Uh, but he never allowed his name to appear on any of its buildings when he was alive. Uh, and by defining himself, this is Colin's point in Good to Great, by defining himself as an HP Hewlett-Packard man first and as a CEO second, 
Packard showed his humility. At his funeral, his humility was seen as well. His eulogy pamphlet identified Hewlett Packard, the Hewlett Packard co-founder, not as a billionaire and CEO, but by what he loved. It started with rancher, etc. Okay, so now why? Why, why does the world value this? Because the world has seen, remember, humility was not a value in the time Paul wrote this. And so these shocking words, and I talked about this in prior messages, you can find all these at our, our Calvary website, even on our Facebook page. Uh, the first century Romans saw humility not as a virtue, maybe even as a vice, as a failure, as a shortcoming. And Paul writes, not only you should be humble and put the needs of others first, he then says, the very savior of the world, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Wow, the picture is stunning when we understand even in its context, right? Um, now, now, again, don't miss this because Jesus over and over again does not, uh, d- d- does not shy away from the idea of ultimately how in his grace, he did this for us. Look look here at this passage in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, richer than rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, by his poverty might become rich. You by his poverty might become rich. Don't miss that. That gives the picture of what Jesus has done for us. So the canonic hymn, we could just talk about the theology of that and thank God for that. But then Paul says, you have this attitude in you, that was also in Christ Jesus. But let's go on to number four. We're going to run out of time, which, as you may have noticed, I, I often tend to do. Um, let, let's go on to number four. Um, Jesus died for us sacrificially. It says, to the point of death, even death on a cross. To the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, again, Jesus could have avoided death. Um, he could have exercised. I mean, he, the, the, Satan came to him and tried to tempt him to do those very things. Um, he, he decided to obey the will of the Father, and and whereas he could have, uh, well, I mean, he literally says this. He says, don't you think I could appeal to my Father? He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, right? Um, that it must be so. Or or he said in Mark 10, 45, he says, even for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, this is so, so powerful. And it's interesting because there's so much more to this as well. In the New American Commentary, it's my favorite commentary on uh, Philippians, Melek puts it this way. It says, as a true servant, Jesus chose to obey even when it cost his life. And that further in the most ignoble way. The impact of crucifixion on the Philippians would be great. No Roman, remember they're a special imperial city, right? No Roman could be subjected to such a death. And the Jews took it as a sign that the victim was cursed. So to this imperial city, to these people whose Roman citizenship is essential to them, the crucifixion, the most humiliating form of death, is literally the thing that Jesus does and Paul points to, even death on a cross. So those words would have really jarred the believer's at Philippi. Well, maybe not. Maybe by then they understood the beauty and the enormity of what the crucifixion was and what the crucifixion does and how it changes us and it changes everything. But the passage, this voluntary obedience and sacrifice, is then we're called to have this attitude. So the cross reminds us 
of Jesus' ultimate sacrifice, his humbling of himself and more. And it calls us to our attitude. Now, Jesus isn't calling you to die on the cross for the sins of the world. But Paul, and, and the, the hymn actually goes on from there. So next week, we're going to really kind of depart, not from the context, because context is going to be king, but we're going to depart from the specific connection to the attitude of humility that Paul calls us to, because it, it seems that Paul's putting in the whole hymn, and we're going to look at the rest of that part. But we don't want to leave this without seeing what Jesus has done and then hearing what Paul has called us to. And in doing so, we get the beautiful picture of this whole passage, right? The cross is this ultimate sacrifice Jesus makes, but ultimately reminds us of his great humbling, his kenosis, the emptying. That's so essential. Um, you know, I'm, I'm so excited to be the interim teaching pastor at Calvary. Uh, I got a text just this week from uh, the pastor that has taken my place at um, Moody Church. I don't know if I can say taking my place. I was the interim teaching pastor at Moody Church, so I don't know if that counts as taking my place. But we texted back and forth and looking forward to getting together with him soon. And the same will be the story that we tell about, about Calvary Baptist one day. Uh, there'll be a pastor, and my job will be to um, quietly slip out and say, God bless, and hopefully have served well in the meantime. But I often was struck by reading some of the words of some of Moody's prior pastors. One of them's name is Harry Ironside. Listen to what Harry Ironside said. He said, God is not looking for brilliant men. And in 2020, he'd say men and women. God is not looking for brilliant men. He's not dependent on eloquent men. He's not shut up to those, he's not shut up to use of talent, the use of talented men in sending the gospel out in the world, right? God is looking for broken men who have judged themselves in light of the cross of Christ. When he wants anything done, he takes up men who have come to the end of themselves, whose confidence is not in themselves, but in God, right? Powerful. We live in a world. We live in a city. We live in a context where a lot of people are still trying to elevate themselves. And I'm not talking about bettering yourself. I'm for that. I'm not talking about thinking well of your future. I'm not talking about planning strategically to better yourself, your organization. But at the end of the day, the people of God are different than people in the world. And the people of God who live in Christian community with one another have to hear the words that Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus. And so my encouragement to you is an encouragement I give to myself, is that I might live my life in such a way that I might find myself looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, the savior of my soul, but also as literally the example of humility that I need in my life. The one who takes up the towel, the one who speaks of putting others first, the one who Paul says and points to as the savior in whom our attitude should be shaped, by whom our attitude should be shaped. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's a powerful passage. Let me read it one more time, and then we'll close in prayer. It says this. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. And being found in human likeness, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death 
on a cross. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe just the beauty of the reality of what God has done in Christ is just impressed upon you right now and just moving your heart. But what Paul writes is, this is how our attitude is supposed to be shaped. So my encouragement to you is simple. Let's take a moment and pray. Let's ask God in his grace and goodness to make it clear how we are to live in such a way that we reflect the humility of Christ, the emptying of Christ, how Christ put, well, us before himself. So ultimately, as we'll see next week, he might be fully glorified. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the community, the family that is Calvary. Lord, I pray that the words of Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking of Jesus' work, where he humbled himself to the point of death, obedience to the point of death, that we would be willing to humble ourselves, maybe not to the point of death for almost all of us, but having this attitude in ourselves, putting others first, as we talked about last week, you know, looking out for the interests of others, as we talked about before, that we might look to Jesus, not just as our Savior, but here, Paul specifically says, also as our example. Help me to live a life that's more about others than myself. Help me to humble myself. Help us to do the same. For it's in Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. For more information, to connect, make a prayer request, or make a contribution, go to our website at www.cbcnyc.org or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you'll join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.